0: Perfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that's willing to go where other Buddhist podcasts fear to tread. Coming to you from Trieste, Italy, and Bath, England, each episode we discuss topical issues concerning Western Buddhism, with a bit of banter and occasional guests. You can join in the fun at our dedicated Facebook page and Twitter feed. Download episodes from SoundCloud and MixCloud. In today's episode of the Imperfect Buddha podcast, we're interviewing a guest who's an anthropologist. His name is Ben Joffe. Now, for those who may not know, anthropology is a fascinating field that studies human beings, human practice, and human culture. Because of this, it's wide reaching, far reaching, and can cover almost any aspect of human activity. It draws upon a variety of fields, including philosophy sociology, biology. In fact, because it's studying human beings and their practices, it can draw on any of the fields. This has often led to anthropological works being fascinating and of interest to the wider public. Many of the great classics from anthropology have been read by huge numbers of everyday folks. Famous anthropologists include figures such as Margaret Mead, Cloud, Levi-Strauss, Edward Sapir, Gregory Bateson, Joseph Campbell, and even the philosopher Michel Foucault. Of course, there are many anthropologists studying Buddhism, too, both in the present and Buddhism from the past. The Savage Minds blog is well worth a visit considering this, and it's where I first came across the work of Ben. He wrote a number of very interesting articles with the most unusual names. Here are a few of them. Secrets of the Sex Magic Space Lamas Revealed. My mother was a rock ogress yeti monster, tripping on good vibrations, cultural commodification and Tibetan singing bowls, paranormalizing the popular through the Tibetan tulpa, or what the next Dalai Lama, the X-Files, and effect theory might have in common. And the first one of his I read, Angry White Buddhists and the Dalai Lama, Appropriation and Politics and the Globalization of Tibetan Buddhism. From these titles you can tell that Ben is playful, and has quite a wide range of interests, and is most likely interested in getting some of his material out to a wider audience, and the Savage Minds blog is a good location for that. It is a group blog devoted to doing anthropology in public, providing well-written, relevant discussion of socio-cultural anthropology that everyone will find accessible. So, if you haven't read Ben's work, I do encourage you to go and read more. So, who is Ben Joffey? Well, he's a cultural anthropology PhD candidate from South Africa, currently residing in Ganj MacLeod, which is where the Dalai Lama lives. And he's researching Tibet and the Tibetan diaspora. In particular, he's interested in the Nakpa. What are the Nakpa? Well, they are Tibetan Buddhist non-celibate tantric ritual specialists. Wow, that's quite a mouthful. These are the holders of esoteric knowledge and charismatic practitioners, often featuring long hair. You can find them both in and outside Tibet, and they have been part of many of the traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. Ben has much more to say on this topic, and we explore this as one of the items we look at in the discussion. Ben, though, has one of those features which unfortunately are all too rare these days. He seems incurably curious about, well, much of human culture. He has a long list of interests. One in particular, though, stands out the anthropology of magic, esotericism, secrecy, and power, and Western esoteric practices, which is something he's dabbled in. He manages to mix many of these things together, including other wide reaching issues concerning anthropologists into his texts. And we discuss some of those issues today. We don't explore all of his work. You can do that yourself by going over to the Savage Minds blog. But we do talk about some of the issues that come out of it. There's one more thing I should explain before we get stuck in. A tulpa. Do you know what a tulpa is? We mention it in the interview. The last text that Ben wrote for Savage Minds was about them. And he made a very interesting set of connections between the practice of tulpa magic in the West, in Tibetan practices, and big ideas about meaning, the real, the imaginary. Tulpas can be understood as magical emanations, phantoms, or conjured up beings or things. It's a concept in mysticism of a being or object which is created through mental discipline or spiritual practice it is often defined in indian buddhist texts as any unreal illusory or mind created apparition so here it is enjoy Today I have with me uh, a new guest. His name is Ben Joffe. Have I pronounced your surname correct, Ben? You did an admirable job. <laughs> okay, great. You're from South Africa, but you're currently in McLeod Gange. So how's it going over there? It's good. This is one of the best times of the year to be here. So um, I'm, I'm happy to be here now especially. I'd like to start off with a general question that might help listeners sort of orientate themselves a little bit to the sort of discussion we're going to have today. Now, you're an anthropologist, or what is the role or purpose of an anthropologist in this day and age, do you think? Well, (laughs) that's a big question.
1: You know, uh, I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind in answering it is that for the last few decades, I think anthropologists have really been talking amongst themselves about the question of their relevance. You know, there was a time in the in the 60s, I guess, when you had these rock star anthropologists in American anthropology, at least, who, you know, your Margaret Meads, who was sort of asked for opinions on every possible topic and wrote columns in popular press and kissed babies in the street. But um, <laughs> it's a consistent conversation about the extent to which anthropologists are publicly engaging and the extent to which their work is being read. Um, by broader audiences. For me, I, it's never been a question that anthropology can provide all kinds of benefits. I, I feel that most human beings are natural anthropologists, you know. <laughs> Our existence as human beings means that we're always coming up against these classic anthropological processes of feeling alienated and included, kind of all at the same time having to deal with fundamental questions of human diversity and cultural practice and change and contradictions. I mean, these are these are fundamental to our experience as a species. So for me, anthropology was always kind of a no-brainer. In South Africa, maybe less so in the US, often you say the word and people blink at you. So as a discipline, I think anthropology doesn't always feel as relevant as I think it could, given the fact that it's about human experience and diversity, which are some of the most sort of inescapable things we could be thinking and engaging with. So for me, I think that I'm, you know, as an educator in a university context, I'm not, so, I'm not so keen on producing more and more anthropology PhDs. We probably have too many of those already. But certainly I think that anthropology allows people a way in which to talk about um, things that I think are very much a popular concern right now. Human difference, uh, human un- universals, historicizing the way that legacies and larger structures uh, determine people's current experiences, finding ways to speak across difference. Uh, all of these things I think are really... that I mean anyone who pays attention and sort of looks online will see that these are these are pressing things. They just don't always get uh, immediately associated with the discipline of anthropology, which I think is maybe a little bit unfortunate because our ethnographic perspective can provide something very useful there, this emphasis on looking at people's actual lived everyday experience in all of its kind of contradictions rather than trying to answer questions about human experience in a more kind of abstract and not so person-centered way. Mm, mm.
0: So why, why did you choose to specialize in Nakpas and Tibetan Buddhism and also Western esotericism?
1: My answer is probably the same as, as the answer of a lot of uh, social cultural anthropologists when you ask them, you know, how did you get into this? It's kind of uh, a mixture of personal experience and preference and just random serendipity. I, I have a quite a long personal background in Western esotericism. I became a tarot card reader, uh, for, uh, a reader for clients uh, at the age of 11. So reading tarot cards sort of I guess professionally from a very young age was uh, really a passport into the into the study and practice of occultism and it you know I found myself as a young child surrounded by all kinds of fascinating people making all kinds of fascinating claims kind of in your typical new age scene with all this bewildering array of of um, of ideas and practices and I think that I always wanted to engage with those in an open way, but also try to get as many different perspectives on what I was hearing. I was hearing so many different things. And yet there was clearly, there were common themes. And so I think, you know, my my involvement in in that kind of thing from early on, really, you know, that led me to anthropology. I didn't really know anthropology existed as a as a kind of option for something to study at university in. But when I discovered it, I realized, you know, of course, this, this meshes with my interests and my own kind of personal quest to, to, to find different takes on, on spiritual experiences and interests that I had had, um, especially as someone who grew up in a kind of a-religious, d- defaultly skeptical, agnostic family but which still provided me with enough openness to allow me to explore these things. As for uh, Tibetan studies, again, that was largely serendipitous. I had been doing research for, a, for an honors degree in the South African university system in 2008 with neo-pagans, uh, witches and Wiccans in South Africa. And I was looking at the ways that they were... Sort of reevaluating their position in the country as these kinds of practitioners, uh, because they had recently been, for the first time, a kind of a new level of engagement on their part with uh, South African legislature around uh, uh, witchcraft and witchcraft-related violence, and of course the understanding of witchcraft at this sort of British colonial throwback uh, legislature was relying on was very different to, in many ways, to neo-pagan understandings. And so what we saw in South Africa was certain groups of neo-pagans really evaluating in a more extended way how they were similar and different to African traditional healers and, I suppose, what you might call shamans, and how their ideas about witchcraft related to perhaps more mainstream south african ideas of the thing so i'd been involved in that and i was still trying to hash out how comfortable i felt being a scholar practitioner Uh, i wasn't sure if i wanted to continue in that direction i had actually just decided that i wanted to study something challenging because it was a kind of nerd rebellion that's what i think of it as whenever i have something important to do i often get distracted with something equally challenging and intellectual but totally unrelated and so, I think I was trying to write an essay uh, for a class in 2000, toward the end of 2008. And I somehow I was interested in Buddhism and I'd never known too much about Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and somehow, some literature had come on my radar. And I thought, huh, I wonder what Tibetan is like as a language. I like languages. And so, uh, just, you know, kind of for shits and giggles, I went to the, the University of Cape Town library. And just thought to myself, I mean, do do they have a Tibetan dictionary in here? I'd certainly never met any Tibetans in South Africa. And so I found, uh, you know, Sir Charles Bell's old uh, dictionary and, and small grammar that was from 1901, I believe. And uh, I just randomly started teaching myself Tibetan for no real reason. As you, as you do. I, as one does, you know. And then uh, it just seemed like an interesting challenge. and. You know, there I was trying to learn a language without ever having met a native speaker or heard it even spoken. I remember how startled I was when I heard what Tibetan actually sounded like when I got some CDs uh, that I ordered online. But then as I was thinking about the future of possibly going to academia, I thought I might be interested in looking at Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhist communities in South Africa. And my advisor at the time said to me, well, why, why, why are you talking about studying a bunch of white people who've converted to Tibetan Buddhism? Uh, why don't you study Tibetans? And I said, well, that would obviously be great, but I, I'm sure there aren't any Tibetans in South Africa. And as it turns out, there were. there were. At the time, there were two families that had been sent to Pretoria in South Africa, they were officials working for the CTA, the Central Tibetan Administration, whose HQ is here in McLeod Ganj. Yeah, they they were in South Africa and they were running one of these Tibet houses, you know, the kind of de facto embassies that the Tibetan exile Administration operates to keep the Tibetan... Uh, political cause in the consciousness of different countries as a kind of international relations exercise. And I was just so fascinated and tickled by the idea of there being Tibetan refugees living in the kind of heart of Afrikaner white suburbia, especially in the wake of, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama being denied a visa to visit South Africa uh, in 2008. And subsequently that's happened uh, again and again. I contacted them and I told them that I was that I was considering doing an, a master's project to try to understand their experiences as sort of both as political ambassadors who really had very little leg room to be political ambassadors. And so I actually ended up spending more of their time engaging with uh, sort of interested uh, s- South Africans who were either Buddhist converts or kind of had a sort of vague New Age fascination in Tibet. And so these were the social networks of support that these Tibetan ambassadors often ended up engaging with. And I found this all very interesting. From that point, then I just thought, well, I'd like to learn more about Tibetan studies and engage with it as an anthropologist. But uh, I just couldn't really do that in South Africa anymore. So
0: how did you get around to studying Nakba? Uh,
1: Nakba, again, that also sort of just found me. Initially, I thought I would do uh, PhD research on uh, Tibetan spirit mediums and issues around that in exile. Uh, and I did do some initial sort of exploratory fieldwork into that, but for various reasons ended up changing my direction and sort of brought with me a lot of the same theoretical questions that I had on, on that earlier iteration of the project on Tungpa. I guess, in a way, it's an obvious fit because of my own background in studying uh, Western magic and Western occultism, but also Ngakba have been, not much has been written about them, actually. It occurred to me that as obscure as a non-celibate tantric ritual specialist might be, when you kind of pitch that to people, I realized that Ngocpa's lives and experiences in exile provide a really interesting way of looking at a lot of broader issues, tensions, contradictions, challenges that Tibetans are, are, are going through as, as stateless people in exile. It, they provided an interesting sort of uh, avenue through which to look at these bigger questions of nationalism, cultural preservation, the globalization of Tibetan Buddhism, on and on. So it kind of suited my proclivities but allowed me to come at these broader questions in an interesting way.
0: Yeah. That's probably a good segue for us to to talk a little bit about some of your work at the Savage Minds blog. Uh, the first piece I read was actually on the Dorje Shugden affair. But what was interesting about it was not just your playful manner of writing and sharing your ideas, but the fact that it links to some wider issues. And I think there's, there's one in particular that we should probably get out the way – which is, you know, a a big issue on the internet at present and in the North American and British education system, which is appropriation and in particular cultural appropriation. I kind of want to avoid discussing, let's say, the, the personality politics and the political correctness and that sort of thing, which is quite a charged issue. Across the different texts of yours, it comes up again and again for me at least, which is this tension between preserving culture... Uh, holding the idea that somehow there is inherent value in specific cultures, we seem to sometimes freeze cultures in time. There's possibly the risk of cultural essentialism taking place. Now, you must be very aware of these themes.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you're right; they are hot topic issues and and important to discuss. I think. I think perhaps unfortunately, uh, a a lot of the the stuff that does come out on it seems very polarized. You know, it's yeah. either people are sort of dismissing or debunking the whole notion of cultural appropriation and saying that it, it sort of essentializes culture and it, it betrays a lack of understanding about how cultural change works and then cultural exchange works. And then other people saying that, the, that you know, I mean, this is just it's the height of privilege to be even making those kinds of rejoinders. I, as usual, I think the truth is somewhere in, in the middle. Of course, it has to be. It's interesting because especially in America our discipline is cultural anthropology, right? So culture is kind of taken as a as a as a given as uh, it's what we study. But my background is in social anthropology actually because that's what we call it in uh, South Africa. In South Africa, you know, my education involved a lot of kind of looking sideways at the concept of culture, not only because of the British intellectual lineage that we were a part of, but Because of our own history in South Africa, where this kind of monolithic idea of culture and separate cultures was absolutely mobilized by the apartheid racist government. So we have a lot of uh, good reason to be highly suspicious of cultural essentializing and of um, speaking in the name of tradition and um, ethnic nationalism and all these things. So for me, I, I think that you've got to appreciate both sides. So much of the stuff that fascinates me in the research that I'm doing is about the circulation of ideas, is about the the way that um, concepts really are very mobile and that they don't get kept in place, and that you know culture is, is creative and and um, it doesn't sit still, and it inevitably includes all kinds of people, and it's it's difficult to. To treat it like a static thing, you know, my work involves a, a commitment to the to Tibetans, to, to always keeping in mind the very particular political and unequal situation in which cultural preservation, cultural exchange happens. On the other hand, I would say that we can't be willfully kind of uh, or or sort of optimistically blind about the 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 political milieu in which. Uh, the globalization of Tibetan Buddhism, for instance, takes place. Tibetans are stateless refugees uh, responding to the aggressive colonization of their country. Uh, for me, I always try to keep these things up in the air, in a state of useful tension, right? Mm-hmm. And and as an as an anthropologist, I also think it's important to remind people that even within the Tibetan community, I think this is something that sometimes gets a little bit lost or drowned out in talking about cultural appropriation is it's not a homogenous community right this is what i love about anthropology if i talk to a 55 year old tibetan lama who spends most of his time teaching foreigners buddhism about certain religious practices he's going to have a very particular take that is obviously inevitably informed by his position and the kind of person he is if I talk to a 60-year-old lay Tibetan woman, her perspective will be different. This, so will that of her teenage granddaughter. Of course, every community has people whose authority to speak on what is culture and what is appropriate—you know—these things will always be different. But for me, the the value and the the, the what's really interesting is looking at the internal and external complexities. I always come back to this line that stuck with me for years from anthropologist uh, Margaret Locke, I think it is. It's a nice little mantra for these issues. She says, culture never is, it's always invoked. And so that's a kind of a direct reminder uh, against cultural essentialism. People often speak in the register of cultural essentialism, and we need to understand the personal and political reasons why they might want to or need to do that. We need to respect those. But when people start talking about culture, it's always an invocation. And so, for me as a scholar, I want to understand the sort of the forces and circumstances that are at play that go towards uh, shaping why these particular invocations are being made at this particular time for these particular audiences. I try not to be categorical or polemical. Uh, what I'm interested in as a scholar is is is, tr- is creating spaces through my work that can show people this diversity of positions and opinions and hopefully help us kind of hash out a more kind of dynamic and nuanced idea about what culture and cultural practices actually are.
0: One thing that comes out from what you've just said is this idea of shifting away to cultural exchange, which is Perhaps a a sort more interesting line to take, and you talk about this in your writing, especially with regards to some of the supposedly Tibetan objects or practices that Westerners have taken on. For example, the uh, the singing bowl, the famous Tibetan singing bowl. Your piece on that was very interesting because what you started to do, at least for me as as a reader, was articulate more fully this interesting relationship between Western esotericism and uh, the key figures that started the whole thing off. This uh, this difficulty or this issue with taking signifiers of otherness. So the Tibetan bowl becomes you know, a symbol of the Tibetans, who are these exotic others. There's this weirdness where it kind of connects to the cultural appropriation theme, whereby um, Westerners often want to fix Tibetans in a sort of glorified, imagined past. And at the same time, they right. want to be able to take hold of that past and own it themselves. And, and
1: then do whatever they want in the present with yeah. it without
0: any consequences, yeah. That's right, Um, that's right. And it's interesting because, I mean, you're not the only person, obviously, uh, sort of dismantling some of these, let's say, new style, new age myths. Uh, McMahon in his book on Buddhist modernism does as much, and there are various anthropologists actually doing the same in the world of shamanism. The connections you make between Western esotericism and Tibet are very, very interesting. Uh, And you even go so far as to make this statement, which I'll read to you, you say that uh, Tibet and extraterrestrials may represent two of the greatest signifiers of otherness in what Western religious history. That is, that's quite a uh, conclusion to draw. Can you say more about that? Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find
1: greater and more sort of, let's say, more generative, more fertile signifiers of otherness in religious history than those two, right? Other than maybe something more generic like God. Really, Tibet, even though I'm, I'm now quite familiar with a lot of this material and these histories, I never cease to be amazed at how enduring the idea of Tibetan otherness is. And then, of course, aliens too have come to to be a placeholder, an obvious placeholder for otherness too. So I was quite, in a way, it shouldn't be at all surprising. It should be kind of old hat that the two of them have converged Actually, which is what that piece about Tibetan aliens is all about. It was—it's been really interesting to look into that material because I was vaguely aware of some of it, and a lot of it just, again, kind of just found me. I was pulling at certain threads, and I had no idea that there was just so much material on this, on specifically on Tibetan aliens, on that on the conflation of those two signifiers of otherness. And and part of the argument that I want to make in that piece is that. They've both allowed for for anything really. Any uh, they've been so open. They, they seem almost inexhaustible in how they can be used uh, in creative ways uh, sort of cultural religious imagination. You you said something that I just thought I would respond to. You said earlier, you know, that a lot of other scholars had, had sort of deconstructed, and uh, maybe you had said the word debunked even. It's something that matters to me quite a lot as a scholar that I'm not primarily concerned with debunking. The tone that I've tried to take in in these articles so far has has been one where I think it's important that we have a critical understanding of misrepresentations and of awkward histories and confused histories. I also think we have to be very honest about uh, how dangerous these uh, Oriental, Orientalist legacies can be and we need to remember that Tibetans are three-dimensional people uh, in all of this, and in, e- equally involved, that it's, it's not this insular world of Western imagination. At the same time, I think Tibetan studies has often only been interested in these topics in so much as, as to debunk or dismiss them, to move on to authentic topics. And for me, I've always sort of felt, well... If people are engaging with Tibetan Buddhism in this way, then that's what they're doing. (laughs) You might not choose personally to dive deep into the study of these things. But for me, I feel like people are practicing in this way. They are making these claims. It's not my place as an anthropologist to go around and tell people that their religious beliefs are more silly than somebody else's. Yeah, for me, I felt that there actually needs to be a more nuanced understanding of some of these more fringe or kind of uh, hybrid or inauthentic practices, because actually, you, you often find when you look at them in kind of a more sustained way, you realize that the ways that they've been intersecting and engaging with authentic uh, Tibetan Buddhism are actually a lot more, a lot more than than uh, scholars have sometimes given given credit for.
0: Actually, I, I quite appreciate this approach of yours because it tends to skip out of that dichotomy between what's real and what's false, or what's authentic and inauthentic. And in fact, this uh, your text had me thinking more that, you know, even throughout history, these practices are always human made. Um, if, you know, if one sets aside the idea of an external God or some sort of divine presence, which it does make you realize that humans are just reproducing, in a certain sense, the same sort of desires and questions and practices even now. When you look at these practices, there's, there's a couple of points you raise. Um, one of them, I don't remember it, perfectly well, but something along the lines of some practitioners, you know, when they, they've they engaged in Western esoteric or magical practices, or even in Buddhist practices, which were not necessarily authentic, that they got results, and they were valuable to their own personal experience. And it makes you realize that what is invented can still have very real consequences for the individuals in their lives now, which seems to be part of what perhaps you, you were pointing to. It's interesting as well that that decision to judge all of the new age practices are somehow meaningless or false or of not holding any real value is is an interesting position that also seems to be rather ignorant as well it's like trying to force your own worldview onto them
1: i I have a i have at least one tentative theory for why that may be the case at least in the context of tibetan or buddhist studies tibetan studies is still by and large dominated by scholar practitioners and it's actually interesting, you know, having one foot in kind of pagan Western esoteric studies and uh, and in Tibetan studies. It's interesting to make this connection because you have a very analogous situation in pagan studies, neo-pagan studies, w- with many scholar practitioners who have kind of who began as practitioners and then have kind of have got their PhDs and become known in that capacity. And what you find, it's interesting, is that especially when you're dealing with material that's easily misunderstood or, or, or even feared or maligned, I think there is an understandable tendency to want to represent religious communities that you're studying, especially if you're a part of them in some way, uh, in a particular light. And often, you know, you feel that you want to do certain kinds of research where you show, you know, well, this is what the community is really like, and these are the fringe elements. These are the people that we we aren't happy uh, to have at the table. I've heard the criticism made in the pagan studies context that, you know, uh, there's been less focus. I mean, I don't know if I agree with this criticism, but because of the prevalence of scholar practitioners, there's been less focus on um, things like teen witches whose witchcraft exists solely in and through the Internet who don't um, practice their craft as part of initiated coven settings, and who might be almost a little bit embarrassing or kind of seem a little bit silly or inauthentic to practitioners who who want to distance themselves from what they see as maybe this fluffy or pop or crazy or ill-informed version of, of what they really are. But as a scholar, I feel like those are very interesting points. The fact that people... trying to draw those boundaries within the community the community of practitioners is very important and interesting but as a scholar i feel like i can't exactly i can't let my own ideas about what ideal practice should look like color who i decide to include within the purview of study right um whether you like it or not, there are people right now, too, for instance, in the kind of global Tibetan Buddhist scene, who are practicing and studying something like Zogchen practices without ever having met Tibetan Buddhist lamas in the flesh. This, of course, seems almost oxymoronic. And, of course, practitioners might say, well, these aren't authentic. Uh, you can't practice Zogchen like that. These people are not really Zogchenba." for me I, as an anthropologist to say okay fine but uh, i still want to talk to those people they're they're as intimately a part of this picture of the globalization of Tibetan Buddhism as as anyone who seems like they're doing things just right
0: this brings me to an, another point that you raise in your uh, article on the uh, tulpa which is the policing of the imagination and the imaginary now that's quite a fascinating topic and it seems to be that you're partly talking about that now can you say more about this idea of policing of the imagination? Is it just about trying to control the narrative or control what gets to be uh, studied or understood as, as authentic or inauthentic? Um, I think that's part
1: of it. I'll also just hedge my bets and say that one of the things that the Savage Minds essays have been good for is that it's allowed me to kind of put ideas out in a half-developed, half-digested form. So that I, I can return to them later, having subsequently let other people engage with them and help me think through them. So I like, I like to do research in a sort of conversational way. I can't say that I fully thought all this through. I guess there were, two, there were two contexts in which I brought that in more in that piece. One was when I was talking about the way that TUPA have appeared in popular media, uh, often in quite a sinister way. And they've kind of become a sort of they've kind of become iconic of the of the dangers of virality itself of the idea of a kind of that the that the imagination and often this has become conflated with cyberspace so the internet as a kind of a mirror for the collective imagination of people and you know the, that that infamous case of of the Slender Man killing uh, with those two teenage girls and and all of the kind of popular panic. Uh, it's very analogous to kind of what we saw decades ago with uh, satanic panic, suburban satanic ritual abuse and the concern about um, popular media, role-playing games, video games and the ways in which these can uh, literally shape the morality and uh, consciousness of, of especially young people. And so this opens up into a lot of much bigger questions about um you know where is the imagination what is it how does it get um how does it get materialized and imminentized how do you how do you police something that is subtle that is invisible that is uh, in in common parlance the imaginary is not real <laughs> but people have been people are concerned with policing invisible forces and the affect and Uh, create uh, sort of the invisible but very palpable flows between people that move them to do things. This is what media and mediation is all about. Uh, these kinds of links and relationships between the seen and unseen, the material and the material. And so I think that it opens up into a lot of very broad questions. And I also tied it into the current Chinese colonial administration's uh, interventions in in Tibet uh, around trying to police the transmigration of souls, trying to police uh, the reincarnation of uh, Tibetan lamas. So, again, that offers a, a parallel but very different situation of trying to, trying to get a grip on and, and, and sort of create restrictions around these flows of affect and imagination and creative force and images. That happens in, in different ways. I think a key issue there is, in, is community. This is what's so interesting about contemporary magic, contemporary ritual magic. You know, the emphasis is so much on the individual practitioner, the individual magician creating their own language for engaging with their unconscious, the spirits, the gods, developing free-form approaches, you might say post-traditional approaches um, for, uh, you know, engaging with the raw facts of consciousness. This seems so sort of free and you know, liberating in some way. But all practitioners of spiritual disciplines practice within a community. They practice within social contexts of other practitioners and non-practitioners. And so in some or other form, even if that community takes place predominantly through arguments on internet forums. It's interesting when you're an anthropologist of religion and you're studying things like visionary experience and um, revelation and contact with the numinous and the, and the immaterial, and then you look at the ways in which these things get shut down, get promoted, get concretized, and subsequently developed. So I think these are classic social theory questions. How do you go from, from one person's inspiration to mass culture? How, how, how do these leaps happen? How does institutionalized religion emerge from one Crank's uh, personal, personal fantasy, if you want to frame it that way. I think these are, these are enduring and classic questions, and I think people think that a lot of this material I'm looking at is quite unusual or quite, uh, quite novel. But for me, I feel like I'm really just addressing some pretty enduring and fundamental s- social theory, anthropology kinds of questions.
0: That takes us nicely to the next thing I wanted to ask about. You quoted Christopher Partridge in that same text. Yeah, and he said that society is witnessing a confluence of secularization and sacralization. My thought when I first read that was this sort of reflects on some of the things you've just said, which is the big question of uh, how we find meaning and how the sacred is created or enacted in society. The attempts by teenagers to, you know, conjure up spirits or create their own tulpa or whatever is, in a sense, they're acting out that same sort of question. You know, how do I find something that's beyond me or sacred within my life? Are you seeing particular forms of a confluence of these two? Do you think this is some sort of reaction to a modernity, or is it perhaps an embracing, at least in the West, of the sense that the sort of postmodern ideal, that there is no true meaning in anything, so I can kind of create my own?
1: I don't think I'm you know, smart or informed enough to make any kind of grand statements about the zeitgeist of where we're at with these things. I mean, I'm totally on board with what Partridge says about how the esoteric really is just the popular at this point. It's important to remember that at this stage, like things that are secret and esoteric are in plain sight in ways that that they haven't been before, in large part because of mass mediation. On the other hand, I would say that it's also been really interesting to watch the kind of pendulum swing back and forth in cultures and, and magical subcultures and that there's a strong feeling in the air right now, which is very interesting to me, that the era of, of secularize, well, I don't even want to say secularizing, but just talking about practicing magic, being, a, you know, in the kind of Western ritual magic context in particular, there was a lot of talk in past decades sort of in the, from the 70s on until the present about magic being a kind of supercharged psychology Everyone had Jung on their bedside table, you know. To be an occultist, it felt like you were doing a lot of work to kind of justify why you would be doing something like wearing a black robe and chanting in Hebrew and engaging with gods and archangels and spirits in the first place. But now it's almost like we're seeing a, a, a different moment where this, there's a strong emphasis on kind of on spirits and it's not jung on the bedside stand it's um it's a reappraisal of the grimoire tradition it's uh people talking about ancestral worship and spirit cults and I don't know if this is something just dialectical and, as they say, the, the pendulum swings back and forth and we find a compromise between these two positions and then we move on. I don't know, but I don't have any position on these things. But it is very interesting to see where people are at now, at least in the occult communities that I'm familiar with. More, It seems like there's more of a willingness to talk about spirits and the agency of spirits And not, uh, hedge as much as I remember people doing in the past. People are proudly engaging with spirits as actual existing things now and are often mounting critiques about the excessive psychologization of magic or the unnecessariness of, uh, trying to secularize or scientize it. So I think we're in a very interesting moment, though, because people are not doing this naively, right? You can't work with spirits, given what's happened in the last 30 years in, in, in contemporary magical practice. You can't be doing these practices without being aware of kind of what has happened in the last few decades. You know, it's not just that now there are more people who believe in spirits. That's just that. So there are these complex back and forths. I think that there's that in, T- in Tibetan Buddhist practice too, actually, but uh, it's maybe less obvious
0: or, or less aggressively advocated for. People are much more informed than they used to be. And going back to uh, the first text we mentioned, uh, I find it interesting how people can be become aware of things or become aware of other sources of, of knowledge about the activities they're involved in. Once you know, for example, that your tradition is not necessarily authentic or the story about it turns out to be made up, that many people choose anyway to continue with what they were doing because it obviously holds some some major value for them. That's one experience I've had with a number of Buddhist groups. The a tradition was one of those. I find that tension interesting between becoming aware and having knowledge about the way the, the nature of things and still choosing anyway a sort of form of voluntary ignorance or maybe that's a bit harsh to say it that way I don't know if I'm being clear but these questions
1: are so much a part of the history of neo-paganism and, and Western magic that's part of what I wanted to do in that piece on Tibetan aliens to bring in Crowley as a as an early example of someone who was addressing the fact that Crowley was critiquing Blavatsky, you know, the sort of grandmother of the New Age and of all of our Orientalist legacies are pretty much all of them, legacies around Tibet. And he contemporaneously was looking at, at her output and he was saying, well, this is nonsense. <laughs> like anyone who spent more time in the library knows that what this lady is saying is not accurate. But what was interesting is that he that was not equivalent to him saying that she was not a a realized person who had something very interesting to contribute. If I had to be very general about it, I think this is just an inevitable symptom of uh, practicing uh, and, and modifying older esoteric traditions in a in a kind of post-enlightenment context. You know, this is kind of inevitable if you have somebody today reigniting the practices of of, of ancient magicians and alchemists and esotericists in their current contemporary context. I think that, of course, we're going to, we might be doing the same practices, but we're, we're doing them in in a new environment, and I think what's interesting now is partly associated with, with this um, revival of interest in spirit work and the Grimoire tradition is that you see that uh, historical kind of uh, knowledge and um, accurate historical context for esoteric tradition is is kind of having a comeback almost it used to be that it was kind of like yes we know that our claims about the burning times and witchcraft or our claims about how the hermetic order of the golden dawn was founded or whether spirits are actually real or not, these are irrelevant. As Crowley himself said, I mentioned in that piece as well, that classic quote of his, he's like, don't waste your time on questions of whether these things are true or not. Ask how they can be transformative and engender results. That's fine. But I think that now people are also saying, okay, look, it's not good enough just to excuse any anything doesn't go. To a certain extent, you are finding in some corners of the occult world that people are revaluing historical, almost academic, critical and um, fuller understanding of um, of sort of scholarly histories of esotericism. I don't want to say actual, but there's more criticism there, I think. It just depends who you're talking to. People have different priorities when it comes to their own practice and um, what an authentic lineage or All of it is interesting. I'm interested in the politics of these kinds of uh, developments and uh, debates. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, If you've noticed those kinds of things in the things that I've written, it's definitely because these have been key discussions in Western occultism and trying to understand what magic is, even if we don't believe in it exactly the same way that people did a hundred or a thousand years ago.
0: Let's bridge that back to... Tibetan Buddhism and Buddhism in general, I mean, that's the comparison you make in that text. You, you bring those two together. I think a lot of, let's say, thinking Westerners have a slightly problematic relationship with some of the more, let's say, magical aspects of Tibetan Buddhism, including the idea of you know conjuring up images of Buddhas or relating to external deities. I think the questions that you're raising with regards to the Western esoteric tradition are also questions which very neatly fit with Tibet and the history of Tibetan Buddhism. I think that's interesting too, because if you shine a light on issues of authenticity and what's real and what's not real on, let's say the the more recently made up traditions, then you inevitably you inevitably have to do the same with the older made up traditions of of Tibetan Buddhist and tantric practice, and it, it brings up a question for me. I kind of feel like. Myself, I have a, a duty as a practitioner of, of Buddhism to be more aware of what people like yourself are saying, Buddhologists and philosophers, and particularly those that write on the history of Buddhism. Do you think Westerners have a duty to educate themselves on these matters? And do you think that that will necessarily lead to them reevaluating what they do or... I don't know if
1: it's my place to tell practitioners what their duty is. I mean, my my sense is that the, by and large, converts to Tibetan Buddhism that I have encountered are enormously well-read about their tradition. I have a much more kind of... Uh, theological uh, grasp then is expected of people in some other religious contexts. I haven't got the impression that this is, that there are a lot of naive converts out there who are totally oblivious to kind of like the histories of of, of Tibetan lineages. But yeah, certainly I, I think that um, if for no other reason than often practitioners lamas themselves are deeply versed in in history, maybe not from exactly the same perspective as uh, scholarly budologies. Bhood- I don't even know if do, do we use that word? In terms of that, I guess it also makes me think of, I guess it's that truism, right? Like, you know, there's this field of study, the field of new religious movements, which I suppose I fall into to a certain extent. But of course, you know, the kind of almost banal observation is that Every religious tradition was at one time a new religious tradition. I do think that there's a lot to be gained, I mean, in general, but in the study of Tibetan Buddhism specifically, let's say, from, from having a deeper perspective of history, I think it can shine a light on, on developments that are happening now. Certainly this is something that other scholars have said, you know, looking at the, the period after the sort of breakdown of the Tibetan empire – the age of fragmentation, the do Sibu, that time can shed a lot of light, I think, on, um, and as I say, I'm not the first to say this, on um, a lot of the tensions and uh, controversies that we're seeing now in the globalization of Tibetan Buddhism, because we're also seeing Tibetan Buddhism spread in a context without any often without sort of centralized institutions of political or monastic oversight so definitely in that sense having an appreciation of history can can give people some sort of maybe even some sort of guidance or inspiration for the kinds of problems and questions or experiences that they might be having right now
0: i think you have a an optimistic view <laughs> i think i think the observation of that as well uh, religions were once upon a time a new religious movement i don't think it is but now i think uh, it's something that's very often not acknowledged and certainly my experience with sort of participating in quite a few tibetan buddhist groups is that uh, most people don't think in that way they tend to take on board the story you know of a pure tradition having ancient roots and being linked straight back to siddhartha and uh, i think there's generally a lack of critical thinking about these themes but mm. but there you go I'd like to finish up. Time is ticking away, and I, I wanted to to hear something else from you about the Nakpa. Certainly the interests of this podcast are primarily with uh, Western Buddhism, but that does include the, the role of Tibetans uh, in the West. I'm familiar with the arrow tear as a, as a Western Nakpa tradition. Are there others as well, or is that the only one? Generally, what's your impression of them? There's a lot of Nakpa teaching in the West
1: um, and all over the world, really. The Nyingma tradition, Ngakpa, are really quite prevalent. It's not the best term, but I guess married Lamas. Many people have root Lamas and, and Tibetan teachers who are Ngakpa without feeling like they are specifically engaging in the Ngakpa or a Ngakpa tradition. They're simply being taught Tibetan Buddhism based on this particular, usually Nyingma, but of course Ngakpa exists in They exist well outside of the Nyingma tradition as well. Arote is is interesting because Arote really emphasizes the Ngakwa tradition and that this is their lineage, and that they are exclusively a lineage of uh, kind of married householder tantric practitioners, readapted to a sort of predominantly, I guess, entirely non Tibetan context in terms of where practitioners are living and their majority community of practitioners. I mean, It's not that there's a want of Ngakpa in Western Buddhism. I think that Aratheya stands out because they are self-described as practicing the Ngakpa tradition. And interesting things have happened with uh, attitudes and uh, interpretations of what tantric vows are. I think one of the important things to keep in mind with the Ngakpa tradition is that Historically, in Tibetan societies, being an ngapa the word's tricky because, on the one hand, it, it just technically refers to anyone who holds samaya, tantric samaya, you know, has received empowerment for ha- a highest yoga tantra and is a practitioner of secret mantra. You know, more colloquially, culturally in Tibetan context, being an ngapa is a often, not always, but often a, a hereditary thing and a vocational thing. The sort of colloquial connotations of the word are, are that it's, it's really a job and not as much a specific ordination in the same way as when you say monk or nun ter frames their practices more in this way as a specific ordination that practitioners opt to take. But because so many Tibetan Ngakpa are really born into the practice as kind of Buddhist wizards, as I've said before, shamans for the want of a better word, so much of what they do and how they practice is vocational and is specific to very often very particular regional and, and hereditary lineages. And so the extent to which those aspects of the practice are even visible or could make sense outside of Tibetan community contexts. That's an open question. And so, being an ngakpa outside of those sorts of contexts, then you know the emphasis do- necessarily must change because. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. I mean, there are a lot of people engaging with tantric uh, ritual practice who are doing it from the perspective of other magical traditions as well. And so they are engaging with kind of the sorts of practices that Ngakpa are involved with more as a vocational kind of thing. So there are Ngakpa around, but it's not necessarily that, that they are just in the West teaching the Ngakpa tradition because really the Ngakpa tradition is Tibetan Buddhism. And there's a lot of diversity within Ngakba lineage and practices. So often, you know, some Ngakba incognito too. You know, in the West, some keep their hair short, actually. So some people may not even realize that the, the Lama they're receiving teachings from is technically speaking a Nakba. I think it just becomes a question of whether you're really committed to practicing something that, that you call the a traditional, or you happen to be a non-celibate vowel holder of, of tantric vows. You know, I think this, there have been different strategies that people have taken to t- sort of attempt to transplant these orientations, I would say, uh, in a, in non-Tibetan contexts.
0: There's quite a degree of uh, innovation taking place then with the arrow tear. Yeah, I would
1: say there's a fair amount of innovation there. And I think that the members of that sangha would agree. Of course, Aro has also been criticized for, uh, uh, for too much innovation with the claim that, that the revealed treasures that uh, their lineage revolves around are inauthentic or, or that uh, Aro Lingma, the female treasure revealer, who revealed those teachings, you know, she cannot be demonstrated to exist historically. And so this is a concern for many people. And of course, there's nothing new about casting aspersions or doubts on uh, self-proclaimed treasure revealers or uh, new revelations. This has a this has a long history within Tibetan context as well. Often a lot of things that, that do look innovative, one thing that I've discovered is that the, the more time I spend with Tibetans and with the Tibetan tradition, the, the more I come to appreciate the absolute diversity that exists within lineages and within Tibetan cultural and religious practices the more I realize that a lot of what's being seen in the West is it's a, it's a new iteration of, of um, familiar things that have been taking place in, in Tibetan Buddhist contexts before. Of course, they're not identical. Uh, how could they be? But I think, I think there's value, as you say, having a deeper historical understanding. It gives you a better perspective on it, it allows you to interpret some of these things that are happening in, in say Western Buddhism slightly differently at the risk of sounding flippant if you type nagpa tradition in english into google aroter will come up because this is their profile and this is the way that they have self described uh, this 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 is part of how they decided to develop as a sangha and the sort of terms that they chose to use and how they have interpreted you know instructions from tibetan masters like jomol buche and so on. Their approach to living as, as Western Ngapa is maybe not the same as that of uh, other Western Ngapa in other lineages. They've developed a, quite a particular profile and set of orientations for that. Yeah, and as I say, I mean my my overwhelming experience is they'll be the first people to to point out that they are a unique lineage and that they have a unique way of doing things.
0: You recount a lot of stories of the supernatural throughout the Savage Mind text and of uh, sort of unusual goings-on. What have you learned? What's something that stands out that you've learned about human nature from researching all this material? About human nature? About human nature? I suppose full
1: disclosure, maybe I didn't make it clear before, but you know, it was really early childhood spiritual experiences of my own that my parents and peers could not explain that I was having that led me to all of this. I guess my own encounters with spirits, having out-of-body experiences, all of the woo-woo things you could hope for, some unbidden, some sought after, these kinds of experiences I still don't really have a, a grip on. But I certainly know that it seems as silly to me as to become absolutely convinced of what these things mean and and what they are as it is to categorically dismiss them. This has led me to explore how other people and other communities make sense of these kinds of experiences and these sorts of claims and the narration of these sorts of experiences. So as to what I have learned, I mean, it's something Colin Wilson said years ago, but just everybody has these experiences everybody. I'm sure you've had this experience that you can be around the most hard-boiled skeptics or, or let's just say people who are not overly enthused or interested in these kinds of topics. In the right moment with the right amount of beers, people will volunteer, you know, they'll volunteer stories and information and sometimes in totally unexpected and remarkable ways. And it's just my overwhelming experience growing up was just I was aware of the fact that everybody knew about these uh, the occult side of life right that that there were so many layers of experience and Powerful kinds of uh, feelings and responses and I- I- imaginary, not as non-real, but as in, of the imagination, forces that were shaping people's experience, directing them through their lives. But I also quickly realized that there were only certain spaces in which these things got spoken about. and Some people didn't want to talk about them at all. Some people became absolutely obsessed with them. You know, so from a very young age, I was kind of sitting there waiting for my own parents and for other people to, just sort of you know sit me down and say, "Any, this is what this is what that is." Um, you've been wondering about this. This is why that happened, or and it didn't really happen in my own family context, but they did say, "Look, if you want to explore these things, you go ahead." What I realized is just that these are one could get into questions about universal human neurology and the neurotheology and the source of uh, um, extraordinary and kind of anomalous or just, I don't think of them as particularly anomalous, but whatever the case, if if anything sticks out for me, it's just that these kinds of experiences, they don't go away (laughs) as much as the Richard Dawkins of the world want to tell us that we just need to vaccinate ourselves against the mind virus of irrationality or whatever it is that he's trying to do. these are fundamental parts of of human creativity whatever your position or your your preferred interpretations of them they're there they're everywhere they're all around so i remain incurably fascinated by how different people opt to engage with these things i think i think they're quite fundamental and they're they're consistent and incorrigible so um I I don't really I don't really have any grand kind of answers still about exactly what these things are or or, or, or what the best way is to theorize them. Uh, I certainly know that they're not going away. That would be one thing I can say
0: yeah thank you for that. That was interesting so it's uh it's been good having you on ben uh thank you for sharing and listeners can go and see more of your writing at Savage Minds. Do you have other sites where uh listeners might find some of your material or can follow your work?
1: I actually have just made a blog you know by the time I guess that people are hearing this it should be up and running it's more of a personal blog and what I've done is I've just shifted a lot of the, my longer rambling posts from Facebook onto there so that they're all in one place and people who aren't connected with me on Facebook can see that in case they find it interesting so that is that blog is uh called the perfume, uh, sorry, perfumed sorry perfumedskull.com so it's all one word all lowercase perfumedskull.com that blog has a lot of work that's kind of just reflections in progress. And I I hope that people will feel free to kind of engage with that. I want it to be a space for engagement.
0: Good. Well, I think listeners have had a taste of some of the interesting ideas you're exploring in your work. And I'm sure many of them will be uh, interested to discover more. Thank you for coming on. Sure. Right. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, you're most welcome. And uh, we'll see you next time on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Bye for now.